Welcome to Ageless and Outrageous, your favorite podcast about how to age amazingly. I'm urogynecologist and hormone and sexual health expert, Dr. Kristen Jackson. Every week, my incredible and knowledgeable nurse practitioner, Rosalind Arp, and I share our combined 30 years experience to guide both men and women as they age. Listen as we dive into a variety of topics, including hormone optimization, pelvic floor health, maintaining a vibrant sex life, weight gain issues, and skin, hair, and body changes as we age. These real-life insights are always rooted in solid scientific knowledge. Tune in for a dose of laughter, knowledge, and an honest perspective on the incredible adventure of growing older. Welcome to the podcast. We are here today to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is pelvic organ prolapse. Pelvic organ prolapse is a condition where there is weakening of the support of the vaginal walls. Um, This results in one or more of the vaginal walls falling down or even coming out through the vaginal opening. Up to 40% of women can have some form of pelvic organ prolapse in their lifetime, and about 12% of these women will require surgery. Symptoms may include pelvic pressure, incontinence, and discomfort. So when patients come to me, their main complaint is that they have a bulge or a ball in the vagina, uh, and they're worried that their bladder or something else is falling down. But from a patient standpoint, it's really impossible to know which of the walls of the vagina is falling down. So I always start with them a good anatomy lesson. I tell them to think of the vagina as a tunnel or a tube inside their body. So if you're sitting and looking at someone's vagina, it's going to have a roof and on top of the roof is the bladder. It's going to have a floor and under the floor is the rectum. And if you put your fingers into the vagina, it's going to have something at the very top of the vagina. For many women, that's their uterus. But if you've had a hysterectomy, the top of the vagina is just that, the top of the vagina. And one, two, or even all three of these areas of the vagina can experience prolapse and start to fall down. The way I explain it to some patients, it's having like a sock turned inside out. That can be the most extreme form of prolapse if if it was your entire vagina turned inside out. Mm -hmm. So mainly the vaginal walls are held in place by proper fascial attachments. And fascia is this strong white fibrous tissue. It's actually found all over our body and it holds organs in their proper position. But when fascia is weakened or torn, an organ can herniate through it. There's fascia in our belly wall. And as we gain weight and we start to get uh, excess fat in our abdomen, the fascia of our belly can become weakened and some people can get a hernia there. Well, prolapse is really just like a hernia through the vagina. The fascia in our vagina acts almost like a hammock, especially the fascia under the bladder. Think of a nice tight hammock holding your bladder up and in place. But if that hammock starts to weaken, it's going to sag in the middle, and then it's going to sag a little more, and eventually the hammock can actually tear, and the organ can then come falling through. So that's the mechanism of what's happening behind pelvic organ prolapse. And what can increase your risk of getting pelvic organ prolapse? Um, um, Pregnancy is one of the biggest factors that can cause pelvic organ prolapse um, because there is a lot of damage that occurs on the fascia during pregnancy um, because of the weight of the pregnancy and also during delivery um, from the stretching and the tearing that can occur. And some patients may consider 
well, if delivering a baby vaginally is going to destroy my pelvic fascia, should I think about having a C-section to protect it? Um, We know that there is still some stretch or damage to the fascia that just occurs by carrying a baby to term. So even a C-section doesn't take that away. But there is some small protection that a C-section can give you um, by preventing the baby from putting so much stretch on your vaginal fascia. However, it's not recommended that you only move to a C-section to prevent prolapse in the future. Another big factor that affects um, pelvic organ prolapse is genetics. Uh, And this is based on how strong your collagen is based on your genetics. Um, I've had patients who've never had children before that actually had pelvic organ prolapse because of their genetics. And we've had families, actually. I've taken care of a grandmother, a mother, and a, even a younger girl who've had issues with poor vaginal fascia, leading to prolapse in the older women, but incontinence in all three of those generations. So we know that there definitely is a genetic component to it. <clears throat> Another risk factor that increases um, pelvic organ prolapse is menopause. And that's why um, pelvic organ prolapse occurs more often in women that are older because of the th- thinning of the tissue in the vagina. But prolapse can can also be found as young as women in their 20s. And then there are lifestyle factors. So the more strain and stress we put on our vaginal supports, the more likely they are to fail. Carrying excess weight or being obese is going to put more pressure on the pelvic floor. Having a job where you're chronically lifting can put more pressure. Being constipated and always bearing down and uh, repetitively straining can damage the pelvic floor. All of those lifestyle things may make the prolapse worse. But what I like to stress is that you need to have some damage to your pelvic floor, either from pregnancy or genetics, and then the lifestyle choices you make may worsen that damage to the pelvic floor or aging and menopause may worsen that damage to the pelvic floor. Yes. And allergies also, um, or people who have chronic coughing um, disorders can also increase the risk. Allergies and smokers are probably another big group that constantly stress out their pelvic floor. And what you may notice is that hysterectomy was not in that list. In the past, we used to think that having a hysterectomy was a big risk factor for having prolapse in the future. But we now realize it is not as big a risk factor as we used to think it was. So having a hysterectomy is not considered a procedure that puts someone at high risk for future pelvic organ prolapse. So what are the typical symptoms that you see when they come in? The most common symptom is that patients will say they either feel a vaginal pressure or like they feel a ball or an egg is coming out of the vagina. If it's an early prolapse, it may come and go. And very commonly, when patients lay down at night, the prolapse falls back inside. So when they wake up in the morning, they say, oh, I guess I don't have any problems. But as they move about their day and bend and lift and do normal activities, they start to feel that vaginal wall fall back down again. Some patients with prolapse are associated with some bladder issues like frequency, urgency, or even incontinence. Um, Some patients will report some low back pain or just feeling fatigued. Depending on what wall of the vagina is falling out, they might have difficulty emptying their bladder or emptying their stools. And some women have kind of learned to take their fingers and push up on the vaginal bulge to help them empty their bladder or empty their bowels. And that activity is called splinting. Um, One of the more common things I've heard as well is a lot of patients think there is a growth coming out of their vaginal, out of their vagina and thinking it's cancer. So they're relieved to hear it's actually a pelvic organ prolapse and not cancer. Exactly. But that goes back to 
absolutely needing a good vaginal exam when you feel yeah. something new at the vagina to determine what exactly it is. Mm-hmm. So is sex a risk factor for um, worsening your pelvic organ prolapse or causing pelvic organ prolapse? Definitely not. In fact, one of the things I make sure to tell every patient that I have newly diagnosed with pelvic organ prolapse is, is that they can continue to be sexually active. So sex in and of itself is not going to harm prolapse. Nothing's going to rupture. That's a common worry. I'm going to burst something during intercourse. Um, But a lot of women end up not having sex when they have pelvic organ prolapse just because they're insecure about the way the vagina looks or they feel like their partner's not going to like it. Your partner, your male partner should not be able to feel the difference whether you have pelvic organ prolapse or not. And it's not harmful for you as a female patient to have sex in the setting of pelvic organ prolapse. And a lot of my patients also will come in and say, my bladder is coming out. And I have to explain to them, it's not your bladder per se. It's actually the vaginal wall. Um, weak and the bladder behind it is pushing against it, but it's actually not your bladder outside of your body. So I, I, I try to emphasize that as well, since I hear that quite a bit from a lot of my patients. A simple analogy I teach my patients is to think about the layers of the vagina, like layers of a sandwich. The, mm-hmm. when you put your fingers in the vagina and you touch that tissue, that's the vaginal mucosa. So think of that as the bottom layer of bread. If we were in surgery to go above that, the next layer is the muscle layer. So that might be the cheese. The next layer above that is the fascia, that strong white tissue that's supposed to be holding everything up. So that might be the meat. And then the next layer above that is actually the bladder itself. So that's the top layer of bread. So when they see a pink bulge coming out of the vagina, they're not touching their naked bladder. They're touching the vaginal wall that unfortunately is being pushed forward because all those layers above it have failed. Mm -hmm. And I tell patients it's the the bladder and the rectum and the uterus are all heavy organs. So it's the weakening parts. That's why it's pushing against it. And that's, that's why it feels that way. And how sometimes when they empty their bladder or their bowels, the, the bulging gets better. Exactly. And it's really impossible for a patient to know on her own when she feels a vaginal bulge. Is that my bladder coming out? Is it my rectum, rectal wall falling out? Or is it my uterus? Because it all just feels like a big pink bulge there. Um, You really need a good exam to identify each of the walls of the vagina and see what has been weakened. Um, So when a patient's present present themselves for prolapse, what, what are your, um, what treatments do you offer? It really depends on how bothered the patient is by her symptoms. There are very few patients where I tell them they must treat their prolapse. But for the majority of patients, I usually give them three different categories. One category is observation. Having prolapse in and of itself is not immediately medically dangerous to you. I will teach them to avoid certain high-risk activities like we've talked about, straining with constipation, chronic coughing, repetitive heavy lifting. But for most patients who have mild to moderate pelvic prolapse, it's not necessarily going to get worse over time. One study only showed that prolapse progressed on or got worse only about 11 to 15% of the time. So that means the overwhelming majority of patients are going to have a pelvic organ prolapse, it's going to fall to a certain position, and that's just where it's going to stay the rest of their life. So if it's not overtly bothersome, if it's not overtly bothersome, we don't immediately need to rush in and fix it. So if a patient really wants to do something, what do you usually recommend at this point? 
If the prolapse is bothersome, we have both non-surgical and surgical options for treating it. And the most common non-surgical option is with a vaginal support device called a pessary. Pessaries actually have a really interesting history. They've been used forever. A pessary is nothing more than something you put in the vagina to prevent the walls from falling out. So historically, people have used corks, big corks, pieces of fruit like pomegranates. They've tried things like pouring honey or wine over the prolapse, hoping to get it to go back in the vagina. They've even tried leeches to it, thinking that this was a wall filled with blood. And if they put leeches on the prolapse, it would go back in. One really unusual treatment that they've done in the past was called secession. It was actually where they tied women up by their feet and held them upside down, bouncing them up and down until the prolapse went back in, which invariably it would do because we know when patients lay down, the prolapse (laughs) goes back in, but then they would tie their legs together to try to keep it that way. So obviously this is not a good long-term solution for for women. So. But now what we have are a whole variety of shapes and sizes of small silicone devices that can be fit, slipped into the vagina and hold the wall of the vagina that is prolapsing back up. Um, When I first teach patients about pessaries, they're usually a little bit scared. What do you mean? Is it going to hurt? Am I going to feel it? But if they come in and get fitted with a pessary, invariably they're surprised like, that's it. It slipped in so easily. I don't feel it anymore. I don't have that bulge coming down. And it's a quick and easy solution to the problem. Yes. And if it's, if the patients are fitted properly, a lot of the times they don't even feel it. They're extremely relieved with the symptom improvement that they get right away. Once that pessary is fitted, I had a patient even say it's like the next best invention since sliced bread. So, you know, everybody just loves their pet. If they are fitted well with a pessary, everybody loves them. So um, it's such a great tool and an easy tool to use for patients. When it comes to pessaries, also you want to be fitted with someone who's done it several times. Some of the patients that we've seen had tried a pessary in the past from a um, from a different doctor's office and has only been fitted with one. And they say, now you need to go to surgery. And some of these patients don't want to go into surgery. And when they come in and we try different sizes or different shapes of the pessary and find a good fit for them, they're very excited to avoid surgery. So it's a great treatment option for a lot of these patients. I agree. And we are really experts at doing pessaries. So your doctor may be limited by what they have in their office. If your doctor doesn't fit pessaries a lot, they may just carry two or three of the most common types. And if you don't happen to feel comfortable with those two types of pessaries, they may say you're out of options. But there really are so many different options of shape and size of pessary to fit a variety of patients. Pessaries do require a little bit of care. For sexually active women, it's really easy to teach you to insert and remove the pessary on your own. So you can remove it on nights that you want to be sexually active. Otherwise, if you're not sexually active, you should at least remove the pessary one night a week. You wash it in the sink with regular soap and water, and then you slip it in the next morning, and it just becomes part of your personal care. For many of our women, though, if they are not sexually active, we can leave the pessary in longer, and they may not want to take care of it themselves. In that case, the patient can actually leave the pessary in three, four, sometimes even up to five or six months, depending on the shape, and then they'll come to our office. At that time, we'll remove the pessary and clean it, do a good cleaning of the vaginal walls, and replace it for them. So for many of our patients, we see them three times a year to do their pessary care, and they don't even think about it in between. They're living their life and doing all their normal activities that they they would like to do with the pessary in place. 
So I know there's a story when you were in residency, uh, a pestry that you had to use. Is that, um, do you want to tell us about that story, Dr. Jackson? Well, when you work in a residency clinic, very often you're working with patients who may have limited access to care. And we had a patient with very advanced prolapse, but, and normally when you have very advanced prolapse, we would recommend surgical repair. But this particular patient, because of her health status, could not move on to surgery. She would not have survived the surgery. So we needed to find something else for her. We tried all the pessaries that we had in our residency clinic and none of them stayed in. Her prolapse was so advanced, she pushed them all out. So our residency director's gave us his credit card and said, head to the store and find something to hold her vaginal walls up. So a few residents and I went to the store and bought a whole variety of things and tried them. One of them was a flexible Frisbee, but the one that actually worked was a small Nerf football that we lubricated, kind of squished together. It fit perfectly inside the vagina. It held the vaginal walls up. It didn't fall out. Obviously, it needed to be cleaned fairly often and replaced, but at least it bought her some time and saved her from the operating room and kept her vagina in. So even to today, my residency director was unique in saying, just find what you can to hold the vaginal walls up. Yes, but that's technically what a pessary is. Exactly. Yeah. And another um, common question or treatment patients ask about is um, pelvic floor strengthening or can I just do my kegels to keep my prolapse up? And what I usually tell them that this is not a muscle problem, but it's more of a fascial um, problem. Sometimes strengthening the pelvic floor may lessen the symptom of, of the prolapse where the opening to the vagina gets stronger. So there's less um, symptoms of pressure, but in, invariably the prolapse is still there. Exactly. Because if you remember that prolapse is a weakness or tear in the fascia. So the only thing that truly corrects a tear in the fascia is surgery. So if we're doing non-surgical treatments, we're just doing things to either support the fascia, like putting in a physical device like a pessary, um, but usually muscle strengthening alone for moderate to severe prolapse is not going to be enough to pull that organ back inside. So I'm a huge fan of pelvic floor therapy. I recommend it for so many patients for strengthening their pelvic floor muscles, but I always properly tell patients that pelvic floor therapy alone is not gonna pull a bulge back into the vagina. Where I think pelvic floor muscle strengthening has its best effect is if a patient chooses to have surgery to correct her prolapse, now we've actually repaired the tear in the fascia after she's healed, strengthening the pelvic floor muscles around it is a really great idea because now you're adding another buttress or another layer of support to that repaired fascia, and it may reduce the chance that prolapse will come back in the future. What I tell my patients typically when it comes to pestries, because they are quite nervous when they come in for their fitting, um, this is just another medical device um, that they are using to help their current symptom. Just like if you are have trouble reading as you age, you know, you wear glasses for reading glasses or hearing aids. Um, this is another device that is being placed um, in the vagina to help. So it's another medical device that you're just going to learn how to care for, just like how you use tampons or pads, same thing. Um, and that relieves a lot of patients stress about it. <laughs> I'm always surprised at how poor a reputation pessaries have 
in the general medical field, whenever I talk to other nurses or other colleagues who are not in the urogyne or gynecology world, they think, oh, why would you put a pessary in? It's dirty. It's not, it's going to cause infections. And actually the opposite is true. As long as you are managing your pessary properly, pessaries help the bladder to empty more efficiently, which reduces your risk of UTIs and certainly gives patients great symptom relief. The only time a pessary becomes a problem is if you put it in and forget about it. And the time when this is most likely to happen is if I have an older woman who has a pessary in and then for some reason needs to go into an assisted living or a nursing home and the caregivers there don't realize that she has a pessary in. So it may not be cared for for 12 months or something like that. Certainly if the pessary is in an extensive period of time with no care, it can lead to infection. It can lead to ulcers or tears in the vaginal wall, and that's why regular care of the pessary is needed. But we take care of just dozens and dozens of women who have been using a pessary one, five, 10 years or more with no negative complications. So, but normal side effects from pessaries that I I mentioned to patients is a vaginal discharge. And this is because the body is coating that pessary with lubrication, which can come out as vaginal discharge. And I tell patients that this is a normal side effect um, of the pessary. It can be from white to yellow color, and sometimes it has uh, odor to it, but this is just part of the pessary. And if you are caring for your own pessary, I recommend to patients to usually just remove it more often um, and and leave it out for a, overnight and then put it back in the next day to help with the vaginal odor. This also gets better in time. The longer the patients use a pessary, the less discharge or odor they might have from it. Right. And I tell patients, we want that mucus to be there. We are putting an object inside the vagina. If there was no vaginal mucus coating the pessary, it's more likely that the pessary is going to rub on the vaginal walls or cause a pressure sore. So some of that mucus is normal and healthy. It's just that some women tend to make a lot of mucus and that's bothersome to them. Other women just make a smaller amount that stays inside the vagina. They barely notice it. The topic of Surgical repair of prolapse is a huge one. We could probably do a podcast just on the different types of prolapse surgery, but we typically either divide them into vaginal surgeries versus abdominal surgeries, or we could divide them into surgeries that use your own natural tissue to repair the prolapse versus those that use mesh. And that probably does need a little bit of information because people still have a lot of negative feeling towards vaginal mesh. When we repair prolapse, we want to repair the natural fascia, or in some cases, strengthen that natural fascia with an additional product. I usually start by recommending a vaginal surgical repair. So this means taking your own natural fascia and repairing it together, kind of folding it over itself several times and stitching it in place to strengthen it. And that helps to support the bladder. Sometimes if the top of the vagina is falling down or your uterus is falling down, we may need to reattach it to some ligaments that are deep in the pelvis that are nice and strong to hold it up. And if it's the floor of the vagina that is bulging up, once again, we're going to find your natural fascia and fold it over itself several times and stitch it into place to hold it down. When we do those types of surgeries, my stitches will be in place for about 10 to 12 weeks, holding all the organs in place. But what we're expecting is that your body is going to grow new fibrous tissue in that area where I operated and literally build a new strong layer of fascia. 
so that 10 to 12 weeks later, when my stitches have dissolved away, you've got a nice strong layer of tissue holding the prolapse down. An alternate way to do the surgery is to go in through the abdomen, either through an incision or with a little camera called a laparoscope through the belly button and lift the vagina up from above. Typically when we do that though, we do insert a piece of abdominal mesh. And mesh is a woven piece of material that is attached to the internal walls of the vagina and it's pulled up and usually uh, attached to a ligament at the base of your spine. This is a very successful surgery at reducing pelvic organ prolapse, but it's a little more invasive as compared to vaginal surgery. The recovery is a little bit longer and the risk is a little bit higher. So when you say it's a woven product, um, what, what is the product made of? So all mesh is made of polypropylene. And polypropylene is a product that if we stretch it out into a long string, we can make a suture out of it. But if we weave it into a piece of material, that would be called a mesh. And mesh has been used all over the body. We use it to strengthen hernia repairs in the abdominal wall. We use it around certain organs. People have used it in the breast when reconstructing the breast. So the use of mesh in pelvic organ prolapse came about really because of the recurrence of pelvic organ prolapse. Anytime you do any surgery for prolapse, there's about a 10 to 15% chance that the prolapse is gonna come back in the future. So as surgeons, we don't like that. We wanna fix you once and have it be done forever. So mesh entered the prolapse world by saying, well, this is weak tissue. Rather than relying on the patient's own tissue to hold up her bladder or rectum or vagina for the rest of her life, let's add a piece of mesh to strengthen it. So they took the same type of mesh that surgeons used in hernia repair and started using it in the vagina. And the initial result was, yes, mesh augmented repairs did reduce the risk of recurrence. But after many years, we realized that the mesh we use in the abdominal wall is not the best version of mesh to be used in the vagina. So the mesh we use in the abdominal wall is stiff, thick, very inflexible. None of those words sound like the vagina. The vagina should be nice and flexible and thin and move during intercourse. So we started to see complications like the mesh eroding out into the vagina or even eroding up into the bladder causing pain, causing pain with intercourse, causing bleeding. Once surgeons realized that, they started to make mesh that was thinner and more lightweight. But unfortunately, by this point, the damage to the public uh, eye had been done and the FDA actually pulled the mesh from the market by saying, we don't have enough information on this heavyweight mesh for use in the vagina. Let's do more studies on it before we continue to use it. So that's where it stands now. Unfortunately, we have no mesh products that we can place in the vagina, but more study is being done on the thinner and lighter weight mesh, which is probably a more successful product to use. So I, when I joined you eight years ago, <laughs> you were still using mesh. And um, I have done many, many um, exams of patients who've had mesh um, placed in the vagina from your surgeries or other provider surgeries, and they have done so well. Can you tell me more about why some of them are successful versus others are not? So that's a little bit of a minefield because almost every urogynecologic surgeon that I know will say, I haven't seen any increase in complications with mesh that I myself have put in. And when vaginal mesh kits initially came onto the market, 
they were open for use to any surgeon who did prolapse surgery. So that was gynecologists and urogynecologists together. And a lot of the manufacturers really marketed them as, this is really easy. You can just put this mesh in quickly, support the patient's prolapse. It's going to make things stronger. So a lot of surgeons use those mesh kits without a lot of training or education on where they should properly be placed in the vagina. So some of the increased risk from vaginal mesh kits probably came from improper use, and some of it came from the wrong type of mesh being put in. Um, because I agree, the mesh kits that I have used tend to be the lighter weight mesh kits. Patients have had excellent results from them. Um, and any of the complications that I've seen have been the heavier weight mesh kits or from patients that I have not initially placed the mesh in the first place. Yeah. So what are possible complications from the mesh? That you, I know you've talked a little bit about it, but what are the possible complications from the mesh? Well, the FDA found about a 12% rate of complication related to vaginal mesh use. And those complications could be as minimal as a little bit of the mesh exposed in the vagina. Well, that could be completely asymptomatic, or it could cause vaginal infections or bleeding. If the patient was sexually active, sometimes her male partner might feel a scraping on their penis as they moved past that exposed mesh part. More significant complications from vaginal mesh could be erosion of the mesh into another organ. That could be the bladder or the bowel or something like that. That's a much bigger deal. That definitely needs to be removed. So that means now the patient needs a second, often more extensive surgery to remove the mesh from where it shouldn't be. Another issue patients had was that the mesh tends to shrink or contract over time. So as it shrinks, it tends to pull or grab onto certain nerves and muscles. So patients can have pain, chronic pain in their vagina, even years after having a mesh kit placed. And sometimes even going in with surgery to remove the mesh doesn't automatically release all of that pain because of the scar tissue around the mesh itself. So unfortunately, we learned all of these things after many women had had the mesh kits in. On the flip side of the coin, there was a large percentage of women who had vaginal mesh with zero complications, who had great prolapse repair, doing fine, no pain, no exposure, continue to be sexually active. But I do remember back in 2013 when the FDA's first announcement came out that they needed more study on vaginal mesh kits, we had so many frantic people calling me saying, I need to come in and get my mesh removed right now. The FDA said it was defective. They never actually made that statement. They just asked for more study on the mesh kits before we proceeded with them. And with that being said, can you remove the mesh? The mesh can be removed, but it's a much messier and more difficult surgery than putting the mesh in properly in the first place. And that's because over time, the mesh grows into your tissue and tissue grows around it. So as you're dissecting out the mesh, uh, you can actually damage the organs around it. Sometimes the mesh kits came with these long skinny arms. So it would be a square or a pyramid shape of mesh that went under the bladder, but it would have two or four skinny arms coming off the four corners of that shape. And those arms were meant to attach the mesh into position. And sometimes those arms were placed deep into the pelvis or around bones. And sometimes it's really difficult to fully get those mesh arms out. Can you clarify between the sling versus the mesh? That is something we hear so often. <laughs> so I tell patients that 
that there are two reasons why we would use mesh in the vagina. One reason is prolapse, just like we've been talking about this whole time. But as we know now, all of the mesh kits for the indication of prolapse have been removed from the market pending further study. However, a sling is a skinny piece of mesh that measures about half a centimeter wide and several centimeters long that is just put around the bladder neck. That's the opening to the bladder. The reason for that is to stop stress urinary incontinence, which is leaking when you cough or sneeze or laugh. That mesh has also been looked at by the FDA, has not been associated with an increased risk of complication rate, and has never been removed from the market. In fact, bladder slings are one of the most studied kits or products that we put into the vagina. They have over 20 years experience. They have a 90% success rate at curing stress incontinence in properly chosen patients. And they're considered the gold standard for surgically treating stress urinary incontinence. What I also wanted to add to our patients or that are listening is that polypropylene, is, which is what mesh is made of, is typically what is suture is made of as well, right? That's what I said. Exactly. Polypropylene that is pulled into a long string is a suture. Mm -hmm. And polypropylene that is woven into a little strip, that might be a sling. And polypropylene that's woven into a larger square or pyramid shape, that could be used as a prolapse mesh. So it's Mm -hmm. all the same material, but it really has to do with where we place it and the unique characteristics of the vagina that change how the mesh is incorporated into the body. So when do you recommend surgery, Dr. Jackson? So I think that's a very personal question. I would recommend surgery if the prolapse is severe enough that it is either interfering with her emptying her bladder or if the tissue is so low and outside the vagina that it's actually getting ulcerated or cracked. Those are a couple of the examples where a patient really needs to move to a surgical repair. But other than that, it's really up to the patient. Some patients have mild to moderate prolapse but they are highly distressed about it and they want it fixed right away. Other patients have more significant prolapse and it doesn't really bother them that much. The patient gets a big say in when we move to prolapse surgery. How about the older population who have um, who are worried about going to surgery and having more complications? What would you recommend? So all of the surgeries we've been talking about so far are reconstructive surgeries. They are going to replace all the vaginal walls back to where they once were. And they generally are considered low-risk surgeries, but they have a reasonable recovery. I usually tell patients no lifting more than 10 pounds for about eight weeks after surgery. um, And there's a mild to moderate amount of pain after these types of surgeries. But for some of our elderly patients, they just don't want to go through that extensive repair and recovery. So there's another category of surgical repair that is called an obliterative surgery, or what I, the way I describe it to patients is as a vaginal closure surgery. In this case, we're actually pushing the prolapse back into the vagina and sewing the top to the bottom of the vagina all the way down the canal. So it's like building an entire wall of tissue down the center of the vagina so none of the bulges can fall out. This surgery is much simpler for the patient to undergo. It has a lower rate of blood loss and complication and a very low recovery time, only about two weeks of light activity, and they have very little pain with it. 
So if I have a patient who's really worried about being under anesthesia for an extended period of time or doesn't want to have an extensive recovery, this vaginal closure surgery is a great option for them. As you might imagine, the one big caveat is that it does permanently close the vaginal canal to any penetration. So this is only um, an option for women who are not sexually active with penetration. Most of my women who choose this surgery are highly satisfied with it. And even nationally, satisfaction rates with this type of vaginal closure surgery are over 90%. Patients really love it. I always tell patients, remember, this does not mean you can no longer have an orgasm. The clitoris is still available. You can still have external stimulation. So if they still want to be intimate with their partner and reach orgasm, they can. They're just not going to be able to put anything significant into the vagina. And does it affect their urethra? It does not. So their urethra is open. Their clitoris is visible. But if they were to try to put a finger in the vagina, instead of it going all the way into the deepest knuckle like it normally should, maybe it would just go into that first crease in your finger. Just the fingertip would would go in and then you'd reach a wall of tissue. And I know examining patients who've had this type of surgery, um, they are surprised on how normal on the external it looks. Um, And no one really could tell that they had a corporal clase until you tried to do a speculum exam. Exactly. Uh, Everything externally looks exactly the same. Um, Even if you separate the labia, you can see the opening of the vagina. There's just tissue inside there that's no longer bulging out. And I tell patients who are considering this, um, because a lot of the times I do the testing prior, um, you want to make sure that you are done being sexually active before you go ahead. And if you have any hesitancy, this probably is not the surgery for you. That's right. And the reconstructive surgery, I have done that surgery successfully for women into their 80s and sometimes even 90s. So it just really depends on your health. The vaginal reconstruction surgery itself is still a low-risk surgery. And even women of advanced age can tolerate it very well, heal very well, and still have a completely normal vagina when they're finished. Can you talk a little bit more about the recurrence of the prolapse after surgery um, with the reconstruction? Because I know in the past you've recommended copoclesis for some of these patients. So we talked about before that with any reconstructive surgery, there is going to be a risk that the prolapse will come back. And that risk uh, across the board is about 10 to 12%. If you've had a reconstructive surgery and the vagina falls again, The second reconstructive surgery to repair it has an even lower chance of success. And if you choose a third surgery, if it fails a third time, that has an even lower chance of success. So your best chance is with that first repair. So for some patients, if they've had a reconstruction and it has failed and the prolapse has returned, if they are no longer sexually active, they may choose the vaginal closure surgery. The recurrence risk after the vaginal closure surgery is much lower. It's usually just in the single digits, 2 to 4%, something like that. So it's a much more durable surgery. Since the mesh has been removed from the market, are there other products that you use to help with the prolapse surgery? Even while vaginal mesh was available, there were also other products that were non-mesh grafts to help strengthen the vaginal walls. Some of these products came from the lining of a pig intestine or a sheep intestine. Some of them came from fascia from a cadaver, but they were all sterilized and made into these little squares, rectangles, or pyramids shapes that we could then use to stitch into the vagina to help us strengthen our natural repair. 
However, the results of these products have been less than stellar, whereas mesh made a significant reduction in the recurrence of prolapse, these natural products have not seen the same success. So it doesn't seem to make sense to put an expensive product in during surgery. It takes a little more time to stitch it into place to not really get a significant reduction in the prolapse rate. However, I will tell you, if I had a patient who had natural tissue surgery repair and then she had a recurrence, I might consider putting some of these products in if she wanted to do a second vaginal reconstruction, just to see if I could get her any more tissue in growth into the repair. What are reasons for a patient's prolapse to recur? That's a, a difficult question to answer, and it's actually not well answered in the medical literature. I think it it probably depends on three total parts. One is probably the skill of your surgeon doing the repair. Obviously, when you have prolapse surgery, you want to go to a high-volume surgeon because we definitely have data that show that surgeons who do the surgery all the time have a much lower recurrence rate than a surgeon who just does one repair a month or one repair every other month. The second part is how well you take care of the tissue as you heal. We want to make sure that you follow all of your post-op instructions so that you're not straining or weakening the tissue in those first several weeks when we're waiting for new tissue ingrowth. So if you are straining a lot, having bowel movements, or lifting heavy things in the immediate post-op period, you might initially weaken the repair so it can never heal to its full maximum support. And the third part of it is the genetics of how your body repairs itself after surgery. So as I mentioned before, even though my stitches are in there holding everything up, your body has to heal the tissue in that supported position with strong fibers. And some patients just genetically are going to lay down weaker fibers and other patients are going to lay down very strong fibers. So we don't always know how your tissue is going to heal based on your genetics until we see what your prolapse uh, recurrence rate is over time. Before we end the podcast, I just want to take this time to quote unquote toot your horn, Dr. Jackson, because I know this is is something you don't usually say, but how many prolapse surgeries have you done? And like, because I know you are a high volume surgeon and I think people should know. (laughs) I don't have an exact number of how many prolapse surgeries I've done, but I am definitely a high volume surgeon. But if someone wants to do some rough math, it's anywhere from two to four prolapse surgeries a week every single week for the past 15 years or so, whatever that number comes out to. But that is something that I strongly encourage patients who need prolapse surgery to ask their surgeon, how many of these do you do? One thing that's been relatively new is this distinction between gynecologists and urogynecologists. So urogynecologists are a subspecialty of gynecologists, and we tend to have the high volume of prolapse patients coming in and high volume of prolapse surgeries. So usually if you're going to a urogynecologist, you know you're getting a high volume surgeon. I think less and less general gynecologists are doing this type of surgery unless they happen to be located in a more rural area where there are no urogynes in their area, and they're the only ones to actually perform the surgery. So if so, if you need a surgeon in the Orlando area, you can come to Dr. Jackson or find somebody who is a high volume surgeon in your area. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. No information from this recording is intended as a diagnosis or treatment for any disease. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe so you don't miss any of our exciting episodes. And we love to hear from our listeners and would be grateful for your positive review. We'll talk next time.